American birth costs are uniquely expensive in the world. Uh, the highest rate in the world, about nineteen thousand uh, dollars at the top end, and a, an average of about three to five thousand dollars, even for people with good insurance. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane that we accept a de facto state endorsed tax upon families for the arrival of each of their children at precisely the moment when those families should be most financially empowered to plan for their future thriving. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I am the co-founder and COO at American Moment. Um, really appreciate you joining us uh, this week. Uh, in in studio today, I have uh, Tom Shakley, who is the chief engagement officer at uh, Americans United for Life. But before I get to him and the very exciting uh, conversation that we had, just a couple things uh, to plug about American Moment. Uh, as always, our website is AmericanMoment.org. Uh, that has not changed. If you are a young person looking to get involved uh, in the movement, you know maybe you live in D.C. already, or or you live somewhere else out uh, uh, in the U.S. and you're trying to get here. If you fill out the AmericanMoment.org/slash/join, uh, we have a little web form uh, there. If you fill that out. Uh, a member of our team will be in touch with you. We'll, we'll meet with you and try to find ways uh, to get you plugged into the movement here in D.C., whether that's uh, getting you into events, getting you an internship, getting you a job. Um, we, we highly prioritize uh, our listeners uh, that that uh, come to us in, in need of assistance. Uh, so we'd greatly love to support you. We'd, we'd highly recommend you do that. Uh, if you're an intern that's currently in D.C., we're doing this great program right now called AM Fridays. Um, it's a program where we basically provide a Chick-fil-A box lunch. Uh, on Friday, and uh, uh, we're meeting over in uh, one of the Senate buildings, uh, and we have a number of engaging speakers, including Russ Vogt, uh, Stephen Miller, Mark Krikorian, uh, lots of lots of great people. It's going to be a, a very enriching summer, and we think you'll learn a lot. So once again, that link uh, is AmericanMoment.org/slash/AmFridays. Um, so for our guest today, like I said, we had we had Tom Shakley from Americans United for Life. Um, uh, I tell people all the time, I say it in the episode, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, AUL is uh, one of the best groups working on uh, pro-life advocacy uh, in D.C. They're, they're a fantastic organization, and everyone we know there uh, is of, of very high integrity and, and doing a lot of great things. We highly recommend you check them out. Uh, it's AUL.org uh, is, is their website. Uh, we're big fans of them uh, and all the people that work there. The conversation that, that Tom and I had today, uh, you know, uh, we obviously talk about, uh, you know, the pro-life movement, um, you know, post uh, Roe and then and then post Dobbs um, and kind of where we go from here. We talked about, um, you know, an incrementalist versus an abolitionist uh, approach. Uh, to the to you know ending the the scourge of abortion uh, in the United States, um, but probably the thing that's most interesting, uh, um, you know, especially to to people that are kind of new to the conservative movement, is this policy of make birth free. Uh, this is something that AUL has put forward, and and if you've listened to the show uh, uh, pretty frequently over the last couple of weeks, we recently had a. Senator J.D. Vance um, uh, from the great state of Ohio, and he talked about uh, this policy proposal that was put forth uh, by AUL. So Tom and I had a great conversation about uh, about this policy, uh, about why uh, conservatives can actually support it, why it's not 
though many people were telling me all over Twitter uh, that it was socialism. Uh, uh, it's not a, a social socialist uh, uh, approach to um, you know birth and and having a pro life frame uh, you know in the conservative mind. Um, so it was a fantastic conversation. Uh, we also talked about um, uh, the history of how birth has actually been free before. Uh, so, so uh, you know, and how we've kind of supported uh, mothers and, and childbirth in the past in the United States. So I highly recommend you listen uh, to the end to make sure that you get uh, all the juicy bits uh, in there. So Tom Shakely serves as the chief engagement officer at Americans United for Life. He's responsible for brand communications and development. Uh, Tom is also a research fellow at Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, which strives to awaken the conscience on human rights and responsibilities, as well as bioethical issues. Uh, Tom holds a uh, bachelor's in political science from the Pennsylvania uh, State University, um, a master's uh, in uh, bioethics from the University of Mary, and a master's in human rights from the Catholic University of America. Tom has appeared on Fox and Friends and EWTM Pro-Life Weekly and written for Newsweek, The American Conservative, National Catholic Register, National Review, The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, HuffPost, and many, many other nationally recognized media. Um, Tim is a, uh, or Tom, is a very uh, uh, hot commodity. Uh, he, he, he's doing a lot of great writing and, uh, and advocacy um, for the pro-life movement. Uh, we're, we're big fans of his and, and everything that he's doing at AUL. Uh, so enough of me blabbing. Uh, we will go now to Tom Shakley of Americans United for Life. Tom, thanks for coming on the pod. Nick, it's such a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, uh, as you know, you know you're a, you're a very um, helpful listener of our show. So I'm sure you know uh, <laughs> uh, how it, how it goes. But we love to hear you know from our guests uh, who they are, how they got where they are. So tell us a little bit about your history. Yes. So, you know, I did not ever think that I would be active in the pro-life movement in the way that I am. You know, I'm chief engagement officer at Americans United for Life, where I've been for about five years. But what drew me to the movement was not initially the politics of it, which sounds crazy. Maybe you know, so many people want to get to D.C. They think that's where things are going on. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the Philadelphia area and I grew up uh, in, a, in a Christian and a Catholic household. And life was good, you know. Uh, I was an '80s kid, Cold War kid, as I joke about with some of my friends. 1987, you know, <laughs> it Close counts. Enough. It counts, yeah. you know. But uh, but for for me growing up, you know, uh, being raised uh, in a Catholic household, going to Catholic school, you know, I was aware of certain issues uh, relating to the culture war, right? And certainly abortion being one of those, but other issues too: patients' rights, assisted suicide, euthanasia. These things kind of came to the fore over time where for me, when I was in high school, the Terry Schiavo case broke mm -hmm. and the high school that I went to, Archbishop Wood Catholic High School in Warminster, Pennsylvania, outside of Philly, that was the same high school that Terry Schiavo went to um, when she was young. And what and for listeners who don't know about that case, what was the. Yeah. Yeah. The Terry Schiavo case uh, was uh, the most prominent. Uh, it was a right to life case that ultimately became a right to die case. Mm -hmm. That's how The New York Times and other media ended up portraying it. Terry Schiavo was a, a young woman. She was in her 20s. She had a an unexplained collapse uh, that led to a loss of oxygen and a resulting brain injury. Uh, she was from the Philly area, she and her husband both, uh, but they were living down in Florida at the time. And after her collapse, uh, a long series of events took place, but eventually her husband went to petition the courts uh, for the right to stop caring for his wife. Mm -hmm. Now, the way it was characterized, uh, it ended up being characterized as a right to die case because he said, well, we just want to let Terry die. Mm -hmm. But the problem was Terry wasn't dying. 
she was disabled. She had a brain injury, but she didn't have any conditions that were leading to her imminent death. She didn't she wasn't terminal. She wasn't on machines other than a feeding tube, mm-hmm. you know, a feeding tube providing food and water, something we all need. Yeah. Uh, not the same thing as a ventilator or something that's like really actively sustaining you. And so this case came to the fore because the national media descended on my high school. And they wanted to know what do kids think about this, et cetera. And it became this big issue. And ultimately, unfortunately, Terry uh, did die as a result, uh, not of any natural cause, but as a result of a loss of uh, food and water. She died of basically starvation and dehydration. Hmm. That became a major pro-life case. Uh, it, it also um, galvanized my interest in the movement because I realized all of these things coming together, you know, around the same time, my grandfather uh, was experiencing Alzheimer's and, you know, he needed a feeding tube in the final months of his life, because one of the effects of, in some cases at least, advanced dementia or Alzheimer's is uh, among the things that you forget are literally what to do when presented with food or yeah. water, right? Like uh, drink the cup, take the spoon, et cetera. And so the feeding tubes are critical for certain patients uh, as a part of a natural process of dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in any event, that the, came together, the Terry Schiavo case from a national media culture war story connecting with my own family's experience of caring for my grandfather in his final years and days with Alzheimer's and realizing how many other Americans, uh, maybe without the kind of Christian intuitions that my family did, let's care for our grandfather, right? Let's Mm -hmm. not starve and dehydrate him to death. Yeah. Uh, How many other people there need the protection of good law and policy and aren't getting it, Mm -hmm. Uh, right? And so that led to ultimately a deepening interest for me after college of getting involved. And I ended up working later, providentially as the executive director of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, a nonprofit Mm -hmm. founded by her brother, Bobby Schindler, and his family uh, to care for patients, not only in her condition, uh, but also people facing patients' rights, denial of care issues across the spectrum. And that work ultimately led to me meeting the great folks at Americans United for Life uh, and getting involved there. And uh, I came on board about five years ago. Yeah. So what is um, Americans United for Life? You know, there I especially in in uh, kind of what we've termed the the Dobbs era, you know, there, yes. there are so many um, uh, pro-life groups out there um, uh, that are doing um, uh, work on a lot of different things. What what is uh, AUL's kind of niche? What are you guys really focused on? Americans United for Life uh, is all about advancing the human right to life in culture, law and policy. And so what that means is that we're focused certainly on the most preeminent issue of abortion uh, when it comes to the right to life issues. Um, but we're also focused across the spectrum of issues. So issues like patients' rights, issues like assisted suicide, euthanasia, um, issues like IVF, uh, issues like surrogacy, mm-hmm. uh, all these things that are bound together with what it means ultimately to be a person. Uh, what do we owe one another and what does the law owe us in terms of its protective effects? Uh, And so Americans United for Life was founded by a a diverse group of people of of all ages, backgrounds and beliefs. Believe it or not, uh, 50 plus years ago, 1971, that AUL came into being uh, in Chicago at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was founded by a group of people who saw the cases that were going through the lower courts, the cases that would lead to ultimately Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton. Mm -hmm. And they founded this organization because they realized we need to have advocacy. We need to start speaking up. We need to try to stop this. And ultimately, when that particular effort to stop what became Roe v. Wade, um, you know, failed, uh, Roe v. Wade was handed down by seven men on the Supreme Court. 
Uh, they invented a fictitious right to kill a child in the womb mm -hmm. uh, in Roe v. Wade. And fortunately now, as you mentioned with Dobbs, uh, the Roe era is finally over. We're now in a post-Dobbs moment. Um, but Americans United for Life shifted gears after Roe v. Wade came down uh, to say we've got to now not only start chipping away at, at Roe, showing that this is bad precedent, it's not good law, uh, that the effects are going to be disastrous for the American people, but also... AUL's founders, I think, were really prophetic because they realized even in the early mid 1970s, they said, if the Supreme Court or more writ large, if America accepts the idea that the preborn child in the womb is not a human being, is not a human person, is not entitled to the protections of the law, uh, is not seen as an equal member of the human family. Well, certainly we're going to do that to other members of the human family. Yeah. Maybe the aged, maybe mm -hmm. the disabled. Maybe others who simply have decided they don't want to live anymore. And so our founders, uh, among them, a uh, great attorney, Dennis Horan, uh, was probably the most preeminent uh, among our founders. And he, he and others wrote uh, a whole series of books. Uh, one of them was Death, Dying, and Euthanasia. Again, this was in the late 70s. People at the time, some even in the pro-life movement, thought, these guys are a little crazy. You know mm -hmm. I mean? Sure, we've got Roe v. Wade. Sure, abortion's obviously wrong. But, like, you know, America's not going to legalize uh, euthanasia. We're not yeah. going to have a, a country like that, are we? Where we just yeah. discard people? No way. Uh, and yet, as we've seen, right, that's that's an issue now coming to pass as well. Yeah. And, and happening all across the West. I mean, you see this happening in um, uh, uh, Canada as kind of a safe haven now for people who yeah. um, uh, want to pursue uh, uh, medically assisted. A safe um, haven. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, that's what that's yeah, what they that's call what they it. say. Um, yeah. I shouldn't have adopted their language. It was <laughs> it was my bad. Um, you know, we tell people all the time, uh, uh, including I'm sure several of our listeners have heard this, that um, AUL is is the uh, pro life group most worth their salt in in DC. We're we're big fans of you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm and if you you know any of our listeners, if you guys haven't uh, checked them out yet. Highly recommend it. Um, AUL.org. Uh, yeah, they're a great One organization. One of the best URLs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, very short. Um, but uh, I'm curious to hear more about your thoughts about, uh, you know, the pro-life movement overall, uh, uh, especially like since the since the 70s. You, you hear a lot of this uh, debate uh, in the conservative movement and particularly in the pro-life world about, um, you know, uh, uh abolition versus uh incrementalism yeah um yeah. Uh, there are a lot of debates about that you have a lot of people now that um you know in a, in a post-obs era um are really focused on the state's rights approach give us give us the lay of the land uh you know where where is a pro-life movement headed uh, yeah. in the next decade or so yeah so as a bit of a prelude to that i think it is important to understand you know when we talk about something like abolition versus incrementalism uh, AUL has become known uh, and has been known for, for years, decades now as incrementalists. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you mentioned, there are some uh, who consider themselves abolitionists who think incrementalists, bad. This is a bad approach. Uh, why did we come to this point? Why do we have these factions? After Roe v. Wade came down, right, the Supreme Court uh, in Roe infamously, right, uh, it, it looked at the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution uh, and it, it it faced head on. Does this 14th Amendment provide equal protection for the preborn child? And SCOTUS decided, no, it didn't. In fact, you know, their reading of the 14th Amendment was that it provides a basis for abortion. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's talking about pulling a rabbit out of the hat. And so uh, with that kind of Supreme Court majority, not just in Roe, but then lingering on the court for years, 
showing no openness, no sign to reconsidering the faulty precedent that was Roe, pro-lifers had to respond to that reality and realizing if, if SCOTUS is not going to change its opinion anytime soon, mm-hmm. we've got to change our tactics. And so the pro-life strategy, and I, when I say pro-life strategy, I don't just mean AUL, but really across the movement, all the great organizations, peers, partners, adopted incrementalism by and large as a tactical response to the strategic problem that was this intransigent SCOTUS mm-hmm. refusing to change its mind. And so we said, if we can't get them to do that today, what we can do is incrementally chip away at the faulty precedent of Roe. And we can do that by supporting the passage of strong, robust laws in the states that will provide the basis for test cases that lower courts can consider uh, and that can continue to provide a basis through the American federalist system of government uh, to have this conversation and to keep this as a live issue because the states can can pass certain laws, do what they can to advance it. Those will be debated in the courts. People will sue. Uh, the, the conversations will be had out in public. And eventually, the thought was, eventually we can get to a point where the membership of the Supreme Court is at least open to the idea that Roe was wrong uh, if they're not willing, uh, even if they're not willing to accept the idea of constitutional personhood, which uh, many see obviously there in the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the idea there is that uh, not just that Roe was wrong um, by centralizing the issue, by SCOTUS saying, yes, it's abortion's great nationwide, but in fact that the court, you know, many argued, we argued actually, AUL in its first ever amicus brief, friend of the court brief in the Roe v. Wade case, we argued for constitutional personhood on 14th Amendment grounds. Mm-hmm. We said clearly the 14th <clears throat> Amendment protects children on an equal protection basis. Uh, and so we didn't get that in Dobbs. You know, Dobbs uh, sent the issue to the states. It sent it to the political arena. The, the Supreme Court kind of, they said, like, we're going to wash our hands of this. We're tired of dealing with this. We're tired yeah. of every confirmation battle being implicitly or explicitly about Roe v. Wade. Uh, and so their approach was we're going to make it a political issue that the people are going to have to decide democratically. And so we didn't get uh, kind of the best case, which would have been the Supreme Court uh, restoring the status quo ante prior to Roe, prior to 1973, which would have been uh, implicitly and then explicitly if they had ruled correctly, I think, uh, that constitutional uh, you know, personhood is a reality. Um, we didn't get that, um, but we, we got a pretty good outcome in Dobbs uh, because yeah. now we can have this conversation in the states and similarly incrementally move to a place where one way or the other, we achieve constitutional protections uh, for the preborn child. Yeah, I'm curious to uh, uh, hear more about your thoughts uh, of, of the movement, uh, you know, pre-Dobbs. Um, yeah. I think you have a lot of people uh, having conversations and, and thinking about why did it take so long? Why why was it, um, you know, so much time between 1973 and yeah. last year? 49 years, um, yeah. Yeah. What what do you what do you make of, um, you know, were there were there weaknesses or mistakes there or do you think it just required that amount of time? There were a lot of mistakes. Uh, there were a lot of problems uh, to be confronted, to be overcome. A lot of that, though, you know, to be charitable is just the working out of the political process. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't realize for a long time as a movement and we whether you want to say, you know, uh, we're Republicans, we're pro-lifers, we're whatever. You know, there were pro-life Democrats for a long time, Uh, you know, and so you look at the kind of justices, for instance, that, uh, you know, I mean, look at the look at the Roe Court. Who appointed justices on the Roe Court? People like Nixon, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, who appointed people to the Supreme Court that handed down Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992 that reaffirmed 
the, the, the so-called fundamental finding of Roe, which was abortion, even though it invented a totally new fictitious basis for it. Uh, it threw out Roe's trimester framework and invented a new, a new paradigm for the reason for abortion. We got those justices from uh, mostly Republican presidents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people like <clears throat> Ronald Reagan, right, in the case of the Casey decision. Uh, and so it, it took us, I think, until kind of the Trumpian moment uh, for all of the stars to align and for people to realize uh, everybody knows these confirmation battles are really about abortion. Mm-hmm. We pretend they're not and we kind of make the justices do this sort of, you know, sort of dance. Uh, I think essentially what we were doing was we were forcing them in a certain sense to lie um, by kind of pretending, you know, you, you hear some of these people, you know, get up. Uh, I think I think. Uh, you know, whether whether Kavanaugh was one of them or not, but one of the recent appointments, Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or somebody, you know, they kind of made the guy like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I haven't thought that much about Roe v. Wade. about abortion. And it's like, <laughs> give me a break, man. Like, <laughs> You've yeah. been to law school in this day and age post Roe and you haven't thought that much about it. Uh, and so I think by ripping off that bandaid and realizing let's just confront it, let's make it an explicit litmus test. Right. And so eventually you get somebody like Amy Coney Barrett, mm-hmm. who I think responded so well when all the Democrats are coming after her and saying like, you know, do you acknowledge that Roe is a super precedent? It's a super precedent. They keep using this word and, and really trying to get her, you know, it's been here for so long. It's been here almost 50 years. Won't you acknowledge this? And she says, you know, I'm hearing a lot of conversation about Roe v. Wade. And as a justice, I'm paraphrasing her. She says, like, the fact that this is being brought up so much in itself to me shows that this is not a settled issue and that it can't mm-hmm. be a super precedent. Yeah. Also, why would there be so much debate about it? Yeah. I mean, I think she handled that perfectly and captured exactly uh, the moment we had come to, which is that, yeah, we, we're confronting it head on and we're realizing we need to create a litmus test for, for we, as we have, for continuing future justices. Now that we've got Roe reversed, we've got to have a litmus test uh, for constitutional personhood, I think, for future justices, um, uh, for at least having that conversation. Mm-hmm. That's been an area, I think, uh, if you follow the debates within originalist school mm-hmm. uh, thinkers, uh, you know, this idea that that some, you know, we even have this conversation within AUL of, of what's the best approach uh, today. And you mentioned abolitionists a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. We've been critiqued by some friends of ours who are abolitionists because their approach, they would say, we just need to pass like states need to pass laws that say it's fundamentally prohibited. There's no exceptions, et cetera, et cetera. This was before Roe. And we would say, well, you know, that's a that's a great uh, ambition. We want to abolish abortion. That's what we're all about as a movement and as an organization. But at the time, we needed those kind of incremental test cases so that the court would simply hear the case rather than just say, no, no, let's strike that down. It's incompatible with Roe. Yeah. Uh, you needed to kind of get under the under the guns, right, to use a military analogy, uh, under the radar um, uh, in a certain sense to get the issue in front of them. Um, and that's even what we saw in Dobbs, which it wasn't a case where Mississippi, which brought the case that, that led to this, you know, the, the, the issue that the court originally picked up in Dobbs was whether all, um, you know, prohibitions on abortion prior to 15 weeks are unconstitutional. Yeah. And they took that question and then said, actually, the whole thing is a mess. We're mm-hmm. throwing it out. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, we're all working now post Dobbs toward the same end, which is abolition, uh, but by different means. And I think we're going to continue to see that play out in the political process. Uh, we're going to continue to, I'm sure, make some mistakes here and there. Um, but I think there's a lot more clarity about what we're going to. All of the all of the groups, America's Center for Life, Live Action, Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, National Right to Life, et cetera. We all on whatever level agree that abolition is is the is the ultimate aim. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm interested to hear what you guys are, you know, on the incrementalist side of things. Uh, what what kind of states you're you're most excited about the the laws kind of moving forward 
um, right now and, and, and what you guys are really focused on uh, yeah. post-ops. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, so I'll plug AUL.org. Uh, again, we have a great state spotlight on the website that shows you a, a national map and the state of the states uh, mm-hmm. on our state spotlight. And it goes through, you know, since Dobbs has come down, uh, almost half the states in some way or another have either uh, put into place an entirely new uh, paradigm of protection for the unborn child or strengthened existing protections. Uh, you saw this probably most prominently in the case of Florida with the great Governor Ron DeSantis, where Florida for a long time had shocked people because the, the stereotype of Florida is a more conservative state, a red, yeah. reddish state or purple until more, most recent elections. Now solidly red. Florida was a southern uh, abortion destination. Um, mm-hmm. Abortion was legal uh, there till um, you know beyond uh, 15 weeks. And when you look at the map of the South, that's where if you would go if you were in another state that had uh, protections uh, that they were going to put in place. And uh, DeSantis made moves not just to bring protections to 15 weeks, but then ultimately to six weeks, which is you know the heartbeat uh, stage. Mm-hmm. The heartbeat bills are. <laughs> Um, very important because they move, I think, um, they move the heart, uh, quite literally, you know, people, people resonate with that, uh, as an incremental step toward abolition. They say like, why wouldn't we, once a child has a heartbeat, say that the, the law should confer at least some protections on them. Mm-hmm. And you see like, uh, you know, New York times and other secular mainstream media or something they'll say, oh, it's not really a heartbeat. They, they say that from a medical standpoint. What pro-lifers call a heartbeat, they say, is is really a, a fetal pole cardiac activity. That's what we call it medically. Right? So it's sort of the distinction like, yeah. you know, it's not a baby, it's a fetus, which yeah. is just a Latin word that means little person, right? Yeah. It's just like, you know, you, you pick your reason to dehumanize, you pick your basis for it. But I think Florida has been a great state with that. Um, and so many others have as well. Mississippi, um, you know, uh, Texas, uh, states also are passing uh, wider packages. So not just uh, doing things like restricting or abolishing abortion at certain weeks or at conception, um, but also recognizing that we've got to shift and to provide actual public support, state support for families, for mothers. You know, one of the great victories, I think, from a federalist standpoint or from just a kind of a Tocquevillian standpoint uh, over the course of the fight against Roe was that you had people from across, not just religious backgrounds, certainly across denominations, but across cultural backgrounds recognize, you know, we need to set up alternatives for people to abortion. Planned Parenthood is in almost every community. Planned Parenthood is state-funded, government-funded to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, Where are women to turn if they want a choice that's not abortion? And so you see the great rise of uh, pro-life pregnancy resource centers, right? PRCs. There's a PRC basically for every county in the United States. There's about 3,000 PRCs. Mm-hmm. Almost all of these uh, are <clears throat> s- small-ish to medium-sized charitable organizations, sometimes run on a voluntary basis that are there to provide things like uh, diapers and wipes, uh, You know, provide transport for new families, uh, baby seats, strollers, uh, even things like uh, rent assistance, tuition assistance, job training, job placement, the whole spectrum, depending on the organization you're looking at. You know, and we realize that post-Dobbs, the state should be supporting this directly. It should have been doing it before that, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not like we we want to compete with or put out of business all those great pregnancy resource centers. But states like Florida and Texas have put up big bucks. Texas has a $100 million fund, abortion alternatives fund, that exists to support 
things like PRCs, but also to say that the state has an interest in providing for life-affirming choices. Yeah. That's a great, great step, especially in a, in a context where even so many conservatives say that the state, you know, the most important thing is decentralization. Don't let the state do anything. If yeah. the state does it, it's bad. It's a great, it's a great endorsement of the role of the state for protecting life and actually affirming families. Yeah. Yeah. And there are great uh, conservatives in both of those states really pushing stuff like that forward and in prioritizing families. Um, I, I want to, that's a great segue into uh, what I'm, what I'm most excited to talk about here. Uh, we raised a bit of a, a ruckus when we had, um, Senator J.D. Vance uh, on our on our yeah. show for episode 100. It's a great uh, episode. And, and yeah, it's it's uh, one of the best I think we've we've ever done. Um, but uh, I, I one of the things that he talked about was this proposal that's been uh, put forth by uh, the great folks at, at your organization called uh, Make Birth Free. Uh, and we we uh, kind of set off a, a, a bit of a ruckus with that. Uh, had a lot of people saying that that's. <laughs> That's socialism. You can't yeah. you can't do that. We're going to become just like the left. So um, what what is uh, make birth free? What's what's the proposal and why is it something that uh, conservatives should consider supporting? Yes. You know, make birth free was a policy paper that we put out just uh, the week of the March for Life this past January, uh, the 50th anniversary of the March for Life, 50 years of marching for life. And we thought to ourselves at AUL, now that Roe is gone. Now that Dobbs is here as a new paradigm, what are pro-lifers going to do over the next, uh, frankly, generation? It's going to be at least a generational fight to actually abolish abortion. It took us 49 years to get rid of Roe. It may take us long, uh, ultimately, to really abolish abortion, uh, let alone, again, not even speaking about some of the other social issues on that spectrum of human right to life issues that that must be confronted and addressed. Uh, but we thought to ourselves, what are we going to do that's uh, not just what we get characterized uh, for unfairly, I think, uh, stereotyped as like, oh, they just, they're just about bans, restrictions. They just mm -hmm. want to prohibit everything, right? That's what the left would say. That's what yeah. pro-abortion folks would say, ignoring the crisis, crisis pregnancy centers and all those other good things. And we said, we need something affirmative, life-giving that supports the mother, uh, but also that looks to connect the pro-life movement with the larger concerns of the family, the American family, the American household, uh, community life, and the common good. Right. And so these are the big, broad ideas. But we really said like abortion has for half a century riven the American heart. It's it's literally eliminated uh, tens of millions of Americans, uh, brothers and sisters who should be here right now with mm -hmm. us, working alongside us right there on the metro, going to school, living lives, having families of their own. And they're not here. Right. And so we said, We've got a crisis, though, as well with fertility rates, with family formation. There's a, a social science point uh, that's that's well known, which is that uh, pick you know any family, no matter how many kids they have. Say you know you've got three kids. You and I both have one child so far, mm -hmm. right? Thanks be yep. to God. Yeah. And imagine that uh, <clears throat> that that's all the Lord provided for us. One, we would still wish, right? Naturally, oh man. Would have been great to have two, mm -hmm. right? Would have been great to provide a little brother, sister, right? That uh, is a well-known phenomenon in social science where people will say whatever number, they, they might have seven kids, 10 kids. They say their ideal number of kids is always one more than they actually have, mm. right? Isn't that a wonderful testament, by the way, to uh, just the, the, the human nature uh, to love and to nourish that we see how good children are? We want more. Mm. Why not? 
Why not have another child? Wish we could, right? Uh, and so that idea um, is something that is studied. It's a sociological reality. But we said we can actually use public policy to help bring about more children for families. That's what making birth free is about, is about saying to public policy stakeholders and to the American people that Congress has a role to support mothers, families, and communities by making birth free at the point of delivery. So we're not uh, naive, starry-eyed idealists saying, we're just going to uh, somehow wave a wand and eliminate the cost related to pregnancy or childbirth. Yeah. What we're saying with make birth free uh, is that the direct cost should be eliminated to families because birth, pregnancy, childbirth, uh, the, the whole the whole process is unlike anything else in medicine. You know, in any other case, you're going to the hospital because you've got some kind of malady. You've got a, a condition that you've got to get uh, looked at, right? You're not feeling well and you got to get checked out. Birth, you know, certainly there are high-risk births and those need hospitalization for certain reasons that are underlying but those underlying reasons were underlying reasons. They weren't mm -hmm. something that uh, that was uniquely surrounding the birth uh, of the child or the pregnancy. And so we said, you know, pregnancy and childbirth shouldn't be treated like everything else. You know, the whole cost, right, you think about uh, of co-pays and deductibles with private insurance plans. The whole reason that those exist is because they want to try to disincentivize <clears throat> people from needlessly utilizing care. Yeah. Right. And so you think of like the hypochondriac, right? They want to go to the doctor every month, right? Yeah. You just make sure everything's okay. Uh, well, why is it that we would have copays and deductibles to discourage kind of frivolous use of, of healthcare like that, limited resources on the doctor's time, the nurse's time, the material goods? But when it comes to childbirth, we say, yeah, yeah, we should keep those uh, copays and deductibles. We should make sure that people have skin in the game financially for childbirth. Uh, it's it's an aberration. That's all it is. And so by eliminating those costs, you know, one of our proposals in the white paper is we say. Just do what the Affordable Care Act did for uh, things like contraceptives, uh, even sterilization. A lot of people don't know that. The ACA uh, makes sterilization uh, a, a no-fee um, uh, procedure yeah. uh, in many cases, uh, which I think is is crazy. So yeah, it's like, what a culture of death. Like, that is yes, so terrible. Yes, right? <laughs> we actually have existing state policy. We have a precedent through the ACA, through federal health care law that incentivizes people to not have kids mm -hmm. and to never have kids again, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so that's why we think it's so natural to talk about making birth free. In a certain sense, what we're doing is leveling the playing field. Um, it's kind of the, it's an okay result, but I think the best case scenario is not just leveling the playing field, but actually uh, tilting it back in favor uh, of, of, you know, goals for life, which is, you know, helping American families come together and realize that, uh, from the first moment they realize they're pregnant, uh, husband and wife, man and woman can go and get that OB appointment and not pay. You know, we paid like $60 copays every time we went to our OB, yeah. right, for each of those appointments. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, the $60 adds up. Uh, the cost of the birth adds up. American birth costs are uniquely expensive in the world. Uh, the highest rate in the world, about $19,000 uh at the top end and a, an average of about three to five thousand dollars even for people with good insurance yeah that's insane that's insane that we accept a de facto state endorsed tax upon families for the arrival of each of their children at precisely the moment when those families should be most financially empowered to plan for their future thriving mm -hmm. but instead too many conservatives even as you said <clears throat> not that many fortunately but some conservatives 
look at that and they say, well, you know, but for the state to intervene, for the state to get involved in federal health care spending, that would be socialism. You know, and I, I, uh, some, some friends of mine, right, have raised that concern and like, God love them. The U.S. spends more than a trillion dollars on federal health care spending currently every year. The, the U.S. government at a national level is already so involved in directing so many facets and aspects of healthcare policy, you wouldn't believe it. And so just at the most broad level, the idea that making birth free, that eliminating those direct costs through something like an ACA style mandate to insurance companies, not the government even in that paradigm, mm-hmm. is socialism is, I think, frankly, you know, probably the most charitable view is that people just haven't actually thoughtfully engaged the policy paper. It's only eight pages. It's a very fun read. Yeah. It's on AUL.org slash make birth free. But that's an example where there, there are these kind of brain worms, uh, even for some on the right, that just uh, for them, when they hear like government doing X, in other words, uh, people electing representatives to enshrine law and they say, oh, that's socialism. And it's like, we just got to get got to get past that that paradigm. Yeah. It's not it's not 1981 anymore. Our problem is not like, you know, Carter style stagflation. It's it's not, uh, you know, overregulation. Uh, we don't need more decentralization. We actually just need the proper wielding of political power for uh, enacting good policy in a centralized way. Right. That's what the whole purpose of the state is about, is making sure that uh, people are not preyed upon. I think Senator Vance say to that so eloquently in your episode when he spoke to make birth free uh he used that great like ten dollar phrase immiserated you know that insurance companies or the government shouldn't be in a position to immiserate families by slapping them with some crazy expense yeah some insane expense of like oh you went to the wrong anesthesiologist Ah, that's twenty thousand dollars yeah yeah it's out of network yeah yeah we uh well my wife and i when we were going through our uh, birth class and everything it was like something like half the birth class was about how you can avoid, you know, the crazy charges like that. Like things like, yeah, seriously, yeah. if they bring an, anesthesi- uh, an anesthesiologist, asking them to wait out in, in the hall until you absolutely <laughs> need it, um, because otherwise it's going to be like a $10,000 charge or whatever. So it, the costs are, are absolutely insane to be to be sure. I'm curious to hear about, you know, the the and if you could speak to what something like this would cost as well. I think yeah. that would be helpful. But how would this impact the the different stakeholders? Everyone from, you know, insurance companies and hospitals to um, families with a desire for many children to, to um, you know, women having children out of wedlock. What's, what's the impact to all the different uh, groups that have an interest? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a broad question. I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the, the most direct impact is that it would make, uh, pregnancy and childbirth a default for America in a way that it has not been for a long time. And there's no question that state policy can't uh, solve it overnight. It's not a silver bullet. Um, there are plenty of examples of uh, governments uh, across, you know, you can just look since 1500. I mean, uh, France tried this still uh, when they were still under the monarchy of incentivizing childbirth, fertility. Uh, through certain social prestige, through through certain incentives, uh, because e- each each culture at a certain point has the problem we're facing now, which is decreasing fertility. And whether you want to pinpoint the reason for that uh, as uh, out of control costs that make it impossible to have a family, 
in a place like Washington, D.C., right, where the average property is like $600,000. Yeah. It's like, tell me about how you're going to have a big family, right? Isn't that only for like condos, too? Like if you're going to buy an actual <laughs> right, like right. brownstone, it's like $3 million or something like that. No, I know. In uh, in Arlington, right, there are yeah. all these wonderful like uh, post-war little ranchers and things that were put up. Uh, you know, and I guess GIs and so forth, you know, we're, we're getting those houses like Sears Roebuck type houses yeah. and you're seeing them get purchased for like six, seven hundred thousand dollars uh, demolished. And then like a two point five million dollar, five thousand square foot, <laughs> six bedroom houses being put up yeah. for, you know, whatever the lobbyist or something here in D.C. who can afford yeah. that but who probably doesn't have six kids. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what are you doing with it? anyway? Yeah. Uh, but but these, are, these are all great examples of the, of the situation we find ourselves in where we really need to change what we're doing um, because trying is really half the battle. Uh, so we first need to resolve to try, mm-hmm. change, do something different. Uh, and so making birth free, I think, <clears throat> would affect uh, a lot of different groups uh, positively. Um, to this question of cost, we again in our policy paper, we outline a few different methods of implementation uh, can kind of pick your preferred method as our approach is we're talking with people on Capitol Hill. We are hoping to see congressional action on this. Uh, our boldest approach, this is what I argued for in a debate recently with Megan McArdle of the Washington Post at yep. Catholic University. Our boldest approach at AUL is like, you're going to the negotiating table, ask for the world, right? Like why negotiate for less initially? See what you can get. So what we've said is, you know, the one plank in our policy paper says uh, you can do this through the government. You can have essentially like a Medicare for pregnancy. You know, if Medicare for all is too much for you, if you don't want to be in with Bernie Sanders and those guys, just do Medicare for pregnancy, which would essentially uh, expand existing Medicare and Medicaid policies. Currently, those programs already make birth free for nearly half of the population. A lot of people don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all done in kind of a wonky means tested way where it's like if you demonstrate that you are financially uh, indigent enough, then begrudgingly the government will come in and will help eliminate some of these costs that are mm-hmm. mostly made up anyway. Uh, you know, and so we realize like if this paradigm is already working for nearly half of the population, we can expand it. Uh, and so that would be that approach, the kind of Medicare for pregnancy approach or Medicaid approach would be the government coming in and, you know, a cost for that would be something like uh, another 50 to $60 billion a year, which we think would be a great investment, frankly. Yeah. Uh, we noted in our policy paper, we spent about double last year uh, in supporting the war in Ukraine. Um, whatever your feelings on that issue, there yeah. wasn't a debate about that. Yeah. Right. And so that, that people now are looking at this and saying like, hmm, half that much to make birth free for American families. We've got to have a serious debate about this. It kind of kind of gives away the game, I think, a bit about what our priorities are with finances and, and social ends. But uh, so that's that's kind of the big, bold approach. It would do other things. It would create a benefit like a Social Security style payment for families um, so that for the first year or two after the child's birth, that family would get uh, monthly payments. Think of like the stimulus payments that many got during the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, and this would do that for families with children. So again, not just eliminating the direct cost, but actually also supporting them so that they can, you know, uh, I mean, whether they want to put that money into, a, you know, a, a Vanguard 529 or whether they want to use it to buy a stroller, they'd be able to do that. And yeah, we'd be using tax money to incentivize this the same way we use tax money to do all sorts of things like pave the roads that we all drive on because we're a society yeah uh, you know like th- so this is one of those areas where it, it raises for folks who hear that kind of stuff and they kind of they kind of like you know sit up and they're like what is this about uh it, it helps them um i think helps us as a as a whole community get back to this idea of like yeah the the political 
community is ordered to the common good, which is not the greatest good. It's not the thriving of some or the elite or whatever or the privileged, but all. And so in that sense, it's it's a travesty, we think, that, you know, right now you have to sort of, uh, you know, we, we know many people uh, as we were researching this, you know, there are lots of instances of people who will be working two jobs or something and doing pretty well. But they realize like, hey, it's actually because I'm kind of on the borderline, it's actually cheaper for me to quit uh, one of those jobs and take fewer hours of the other job so then I can qualify for Medicaid coverage for my pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty messed up, yeah. right? Like that's a distorted social policy. And so we can fix that with a Medicare, uh, Medicare for all approach uh, for pregnancy, I should say. Uh, if you don't want to go that route, which would involve the government uh, assuming that added expense, which again, although... You know, fifty billion dollars—it's—it's it's not nothing, um, but it, it does. If you look at it within the broad picture of the current budget, that's about like a half a percent of all current federal healthcare spending. Yeah. So if your big thing is like this is outrageous, that fifty billion dollars—you know—we spend over a trillion dollars currently. Yeah. So like, if if your issue is like waste, fraud, and abuse, like go fix that. Yeah. Before you're going to complain about this, but in any event, uh, if that's not your if that's not your thing. Uh, probably the most politically palatable, we think, approach, uh, which we're happy to see happen, happy to accept at the negotiating table, is is the ACA style uh, private insurer mandate. And the beauty of that is that it adds no cost uh, for the federal government. It adds no cost to the taxpayers. Uh, there would, uh, because the state, the government would be mandating private insurers cover pregnancy, childbirth and related services as a part of insurance without copays, without deductibles. Uh, there's no doubt that premiums would, would be impacted to some degree. But again, um, that's uh, a good thing because you think about uh, uh, an analogy would be uh, property taxes and public schooling. Whether you have children or not, whether you send your children to public school or not, you're paying property taxes. Why? Because we say that schooling, that education is a public good. And even though the outcomes of public schools are generally atrocious, uh, you know, people way below reading levels, way below math competency levels, whatever. The principle is correct. That's why things like school choice is so important. It states mm-hmm. the past because it actually gives people, the families, the freedom back to use that money that really is theirs for the good of the community. It's not yeah. just the education of one child or one family, but for the whole community to thrive. Uh, it does impact us severely when some are excluded, when some are at below those reading levels and so forth. We take the same approach for property taxes in public schools to something like uh, an ACA-style mandate where premiums will rise for some. Uh, and that's fine because it's going to result in a paradigm where uh, you have, you think of like, uh, you know, whatever, take uh, the the person who's been, you know, maybe on the internet too much and they think that the, the world is going to end or they think they're the reason the world is in such a bad shape. And they've gone out and they've used that ACA benefit. They've gotten themselves sterilized. Right. They're living the good they're, the, the world, you know, their their crimes are going to end with them. Right. They're not going to have any kids. They're not going to have a family. Well, they're still a part of society. And with this paradigm, their insurance premium increase, if it happens, is going to help pay for the child care and births and related costs of those who do have children, mm-hmm. because that's what the country's all about. We're yeah. knit together. We're bound together as rugged and individualistic as we are as Americans by nature. Right. We want to do things on our own. We are a society. This is enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. It's enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. Our whole order is about the public welfare, uh, the general welfare. Uh, that's that's what this is at heart. That's what making birth free is about at heart, is, is actually strengthening that, it, promoting it, enriching it. 
Uh, and so we think the the private insurer mandate is is probably a pretty attractive thing that makes sense to people. No cost for the government, uh, and you know only really benefits for those with uh, with private insurance. The downside, of course, is you need private insurance to get it, and so that would still result in Medicare and Medicaid doing what they're doing, paying for almost half of births. Uh, for those with insurance, they would get that benefit. And, you know, it, it wouldn't be universal in the way that uh, kind of a, a Medicare for pregnancy would be. But it would be, you know, frankly, uh, a great outcome, uh, yeah. a great incremental step. <clears throat> yeah. What would uh, what do you think the impact would be? Um, I mean, I mean, I'm assuming it's it's generally positive, but I think I've seen these, um, you know, studies done where you know, the, the number one, um, reason why, uh, you know, people decide to stop having children or whatever is, is the cost, um, yeah. how expensive it is. Um, not just, you know, throughout, uh, childbirth, which is obviously an insanely expensive, uh, process, but, but even, um, child rearing, uh, what kind of effect do you think this would have on, um, just the general fertility and, and, and growth of our nation? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say with certainty um, because I think, you know, my my take on kind of our fertility crisis and the family formation crisis is that it's definitely there's definitely a major economic aspect to it. Right. People who have been taught, trained, whether by their family or by their universities <clears throat> or whatever, uh, you know, don't even think about dating seriously or having a family until, you know, you've got that partner level track or wh- whatever the thing is. Right. Um and and that has misled so many because they end up like in their 30s or even 40s and they're like, OK, I think I think I'm ready to finally have a kid. And they look around and it's too late for whatever set of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as a social signal, I think this is a really important mechanism that would have a, a positive effect. Uh, you know, I don't know for sure how to measure that uh, immediately, but uh, there's no question, again, by by creating a new cultural default. Where it's like everybody knows that there's no cost to have a kid. Like, yeah. why not? Why wouldn't you? Why would you wait? You know, if you could, if you want them. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, I think there's a lot of positivity there. But but there's also something, you know, as we're talking about this, that uh, uh, I'll, I'll read from you actually uh, an article, uh, just a few excerpts from an article. Uh, a, a guy who I was not familiar with before he wrote this uh, piece that came across our radar after Make Birth Free. His name's Alan Carlson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was appointed by President Reagan to the National Commission for Children. Uh, he's retired now, but he wrote a piece for the Institute for Family Studies mm-hmm. after we put out our policy paper. And it was a really a gift of a piece. He told us about a history that, that we knew nothing of. And his piece is called The Forgotten History uh, of America Making Birth Free. Hmm. It turns out we've done this before, believe it or not. Uh, and that's what Alan writes about. Uh, so he says that uh, he says that Uh, Quote, these advocates have actually resurrected a sharp, if now largely forgotten policy debate over the very same issues conducted a century ago. The triumph and eventual failure of the Shepherd Towner Maternity and Infancy Act. This is around 1919. Is this amazing? Yeah, this is very interesting. It was like immediately go to Wikipedia and I'm like, (laughs) is this real? Like, what's going on? Uh, And and Carlson writes about this. Uh, You know, this was you think about your 1919, your your, you know, at the tail end, your World War One has has taken place. There's been this disastrous social dislocation. Um, The the communists are just starting to come to the fore. I mean, the world is, is such a different place. Right. And the way that Americans thought about social policy was in such a different place. And so this Shepherd uh, Towner Maternity and Infancy Act uh, was all about doing what we're talking about now, again, doing uh, by making birth free. Uh, it was a comprehensive program. And so Carlson writes, uh, dedicated to baby saving, uh, the Bureau for Children that was set up 
organized National Baby Week. Uh, over 4,000 communities and an amazing 1.1 million w women uh, took part in a uh, baby care seminars and good-natured best mother contests. Hmm. Love that. So wholesome. Uh, and heard orators praise motherhood as a vital element of national welfare. Uh, you know, so you see the story of this and you think like, you realize first, like how true that is that the past is a foreign country. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can picture that people getting up on their soapboxes and the orators talking about the glories of motherhood and family life and why they're the best mother. And <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. So wholesome. So wholesome. Uh, and so, you know, the, uh, the 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 critical thing about this was that the 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 act, uh, you know, didn't set uh, means testing or income limits or anything like that. It really was a universal program. Um, it, it ultimately, you know, he talks about, uh, kind of what led to its downfall. Um, uh, but before we, before that, let me talk about the, the interesting array of social forces that came together to support this, uh, this maternal and infancy act. Uh, he says that the support for this was, uh, among the largest and most effective lobbying campaigns in American history. Proponents of the Shepherd Towner bill, uh, as the measure was called, rallied an impressive array of allies, including the settlement houses of Chicago, New York, and other large cities and their wealthy donors the hundreds of upper crust women's clubs spread across the land, the League of Women Voters, uh, the Women's Trade Union League. Uh, we need these back. Uh, the National Council of Jewish Women and even the Daughters of the American Revolution. <sighs> the American Medical Association fiercely opposed the bill as the opening wedge of socialized medicine. <laughs> the AMA called it, quote unquote, sob stuff. However, the physician's Carlson writes were overwhelmed overwhelmed by the literal millions of letters that poured into Washington D.C., and so this led ultimately to being uh, passed overwhelmingly in Congress. It was signed by um, Republican President Harding, hmm. uh, and it went into effect. Uh, and it was in place for about ten years. Uh, it ultimately uh, it, it started to face problems in uh, 1927. The political winds had shifted. The AMA and other opponents of what was making birth free at the time through this act. Uh, started to charge that the effects of this were uh, Bolshevistic was the hmm. charge. Uh, communist, right? Uh, a more maybe sharp-tongued version of that more lame socialism charge. Yeah. <laughs> but the result of this, right, was that this, this act, which had led to thousands of doctors and nurses uh, being funded basically by the government through this Maternal and Infancy Act to go out across the country in cities, uh, in rural communities, there weren't really the suburbs yet uh, to educate women uh, about uh, maternal uh, health, about their own health uh, as as hopeful mothers, even to show them what were the things that led to high maternal mortality? What were the things that, you know, what were the behaviors that you can change that would help uh, to ensure that your baby is going to be born in the healthiest way? That's what this was all about, making sure that that whether you lived in the heart of the city, whether you were wealthy, because, again, it wasn't means tested, it was universal or whether you were a farmer's daughter out in the countryside, uh, these folks were there. And for that 10 year period, uh, they're changing the culture. Uh, maternal mortality dropped, uh, various forms of, uh, of, of child uh, uh, illness dropped as a result of this. Um, it was a great success story. Uh, but again, what killed it was ultimately uh, you know, discontent and ultimately fracturing 
a kind of among the women's block. Uh, the Daughters of the Revolution kind of defected by the late 1920s kind of concern. Maybe this is Bolshevistic where the daughters mm-hmm. of the American Revolution, after all. Uh, and I love them, by the way. I'm a son of the American Revolution, so no no shade against the DAR. But, uh, you know, mistakes happen. And this was one of them uh, yeah. because by 1927, Congress did renew uh, this act for one more period uh, with the provision that it must sunset in 1929. Mm. Uh, what a what a terrible year for it to uh... <laughs> right 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 you know yeah you think i mean when i was first reading about this i'm like oh this must have ended because of the great depression and it's like no it ended because of fractured political will essentially and and just silly um kind of nascent culture war disputes essentially yeah um but that's that's the forgotten history of making birth free that alan carlson writes about um and so in that sense we can kind of take heart uh you know especially if you're listening and you think you're kind of a skeptic of it you think oh the state shouldn't intervene in this way or, you know, it shouldn't even tell insurance companies what to do. What's the state? You know, it's like, yeah. OK, uh, you know, look at the history we have. Look at this, you know, Maternal and Infancy Act of the 1920s. Look at the success it had. Research this. Yeah. Realize that we've done this before. We could do it again. Yeah. yeah if you send me the uh, link to that article, I'll make sure we put it in the yes. in the show notes so that uh, people can people can check it out. Um, you know, you talked about uh, the, the political coalition uh, around that bill. I'm curious what it what it looks like, um, you know, as it relates to make birth free. I mean, you have at least one senator from the great state of Ohio That's right. that is uh, that is supportive of it. And obviously, you know, no need to uh, uh, reveal any private conversations you've had or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But but generally speaking, like what's what's the coalition for a, a bill like this? How how would it actually happen? Yes. Well, I think, you know, our our hope is that uh, whether this happens, you know, uh, tomorrow or in a few years time, um, that this will be a truly bipartisan moment um, in Congress for the pro-life movement. And if that's not your thing, you could say for the pro-family movement or whatever, you know, uh, if you're on the other side of the aisle. But there's interest from both sides. You know, it wasn't just uh, Senator Vance who spoke warmly about it. It was also uh, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Mm. He tweeted about it. Uh, uh, you know, he tweeted, I think it was a piece in the American Conservative. Yep. Bradley Devlin wrote about uh, it, was, it was a great title. It was Babies Are Good. Yeah. You know, so it's like, <laughs> I like making birth free. Babies are good. We need to get back to like simple principles. Right. I did. A, I did a double take when I saw that he tweeted that article. I was like, is this a parody account? Yes. Like he's tweeting Brad Devlin. Wait, what, what's happening? <laughs> I, I love to kind of like the, you know, obligatory. Like, I think these people are bad. Like, you know, yeah. where it's coming from. But the idea is good, right? Yeah. And he did applaud universal child care in this way. Uh, you know, and so I think that shows the potential. We know, again, from conversations we've had that there's a, a, a much greater groundswell of interest on both sides of the aisle for this kind of thing. I think the great challenge for the Democrats is going to be getting over their trepidation, uh, or maybe their political concerns about being seen to work with kind of pro-life, pro-family interest, because aren't those, you know, bad? Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be a thing that they're going to have to get over. And Republicans uh, in general are going to have to get over kind of the the, the fear uh, that that some, frankly, within the halls of financial capital are going to whisper into their ear, which mm-hmm. is this is socialism. Um, you know, to do that, as we've seen with Alan Carlson's great piece and history, ignores American history. It ignores what has been efficacious, uh, but it also ignores common sense, which is that you know, the state exists to get involved in these kind of things, whether you want to go with the Medicare for pregnancy approach or whether you want to go with like an ACA style insurance mandate. It exists to do this. Tell me if you think that this is socialized or inappropriate in some way. 
tell me about the hospital that you would be excited to go into for whatever, you know, knee replacement, heart surgery or whatever that was not regulated with self health and safety standards by the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel comfortable going into an unregulated hospital. Those are called abortion clinics, right? Yeah. Those are Planned Parenthoods, right? And pro-lifers rightly say that there's a need for health and safety regulation on those. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're suddenly going to say there's not a role for the state in in increasing access and increasing services for bringing new Americans into the world. Give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Babies are good. Babies are good, man. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Yeah, and I think too on, on the on the trajectory of it, you know, we'll see. Uh, we're we're hopeful um, that it will happen sooner rather than later. At the same time, you know, we're we're a fifty plus year old organization, so we're we're you know pragmatic and prudential about these things too. They can take time to unfold, and it can take time for people to kind of warm up to it, which we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a great analogy, perhaps, for where we might go is something like um, the history of the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, which, you know, initially started to pick up steam. Uh, you know, the great Hadley Arcus, uh, yeah. you know, he was he was one of the, the pivotal figures uh, pushing this in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, natural law scholar, professor uh, emeritus at Amherst um, uh, over at the James Wilson Institute, all great uh, things. And Hadley and others realized that uh, after the Casey decision in 1992, when it seemed like you know our hopes were dashed, we just had all these new appointments from Reagan, from Bush, and yet this court again affirms abortion. What are we going to do? They took an incremental approach and they said, we can at least ban, certainly through Congress, the most heinous form of abortion, which was partial birth abortion, uh, which even, you know, they recognized, I think, sensibly that even many on the left were really you know, hesitant, reticent to defend this. Uh, you can look up what this involves. Live action has done great animated versions of what partial birth abortion is. This was defended barbarically by many pro-abortion activists. The process was the woman uh, being put into labor and delivering the child uh, to such a, a, a point where the child's body is out, lower body, but the head remains in the mother. And at that point, while the child is still in some, you know, nonsense sense, not born, while that, that head is still in the mother's body, uh, scissors puncture the base of the child's skull and the child's brain is evacuated with a suction machine. Mm. That's partial birth abortion. That's That was one of the things that Roe gave us that normalized, that taught yeah. Americans uh, was not simply okay, but that in fact, maybe it's good. Maybe that's... Yeah. Maybe doing that to babies is key to women's equality. Maybe it's key to American empowerment, right? And so Hadley and others recognized through the the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act push, let's get rid of this because this fires our people, kind of like heartbeat bills. It makes sense. People hear about it. They're like, what the heck is this? Yeah, this is We allow this? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy, right? And so even if you think generally like, I don't want to interfere with somebody's right to choose to kill their child, but I, I, you know, I don't think that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe that's that's too gruesome. Well, that took about a decade <clears throat> to get done. You know, right after Casey, there was a push. Clinton's president. Uh, you know, you have Newt Gingrich, but, you know, their priorities aren't 100 percent aligned in this way of immediately going down this path. And so people thought, well, this is crazy. There's not going to be the votes for this. Why are they even trying this? But, you know, it keeps getting reintroduced over and over again. And it picks up steam. People are paying attention in Congress. They're saying this makes sense. You get more and more votes. Changing circumstances, President Bush is elected, 
uh, you have uh, changing Congress. And so by 2003, the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act is finally uh, passed in Congress, signed by the president. It's immediately litigated, of course, because pro-abortion forces who do the standard double game of like, this isn't happening, but it's good that if it could happen, it should. Yeah. You know, they're saying, you know, they, they litigated the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court even by 2006 rules on this and says, yeah, yeah, Congress's decision to ban this is totally fine. Uh, and so that was a huge victory. Uh, it was like, you know, in one of those maybe quieter periods in some sense of the pro-life movement as we continue to work toward Rose abolition. Um, that, that was a major success story. And we think, you know, we look at that and we say, yeah, that, that could be could be a, kind of a trajectory, timeline, template for making birth free uh, for those members on either side of the aisle who might initially look at this and not want to do it for whatever reason. Let's talk about it. Let's yeah. warm up to the idea. Let's look at American history. Let's ask why we can't do this again. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. We, uh, you know, certainly hope for your success in that. Um, in our closing minutes here, I, I, you know, this this is such an important issue to, to so many um, of young people in American Moments Network that that work in Congress. It's it's mm, um, yeah. uh, we have a lot of people in our network that that hold this issue very close. It's very dear to their heart. Uh, if you had advice for for people working in Congress that have uh, some sort of say uh, on on these pro-life issues, uh, what advice would you give? Oh, gosh. Uh, we're thinking of, of uh, maybe influencing a member, helping give them heart. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the biggest thing, yeah, is is to just uh, don't don't be reticent. Don't don't think like I better not open my mouth about this or my members kind of known as this or that. Maybe not a big social conservative, maybe more of a financial business guy, whatever. No, speak, speak, you know, because if there's one thing that's rewarded uh, really in any professional setting, frankly, uh, at least for the type of folks who would be. American moment listeners and fans. Mm -hmm. uh, it's candor. It's truth. We we can have conversations and we can even agree to disagree if need be without becoming enemies. That's what hopefully all of America can get back to. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, you know, if, if you're uh, in someone's office or if you're here in D.C. on an internship or something or if you're going to be here, um, just just be upfront, be bold about about the, the possibilities, the opportunities. And and if you can show the way that these issues are going to connect to electoral viability. People, voters reward boldness. They reward it. And as long as the candidate is capable of articulating sensibly, soundly, simply why something is good or why something should be done or why something was done, why it was voted for, they'll be rewarded at the pulse. There's no mm -hmm. question about that. And so whether you're talking about something like moving toward making birth free, whether you're talking about any other uh, human right to life issue from abortion to euthanasia to assisted suicide. People want to imagine an America again that is welcoming, that's actually a land of, of thriving and possibility where the dream is still alive, where success isn't going to mean, isn't going to necessitate uh, putting your folks in a home when they're at whatever age or because, you know, they were struck with whatever condition because you're, you know, you're in D.C. or you're wherever and you can't afford to take them in. And, well, you know, I wish they had planned better financially. I wish they had put more money in fidelity or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like people want to get to an America where we have state policy along the lines of make birth free uh, state policy that incentivizes parents to live in the homes with their children and their grandchildren to get us back mm -hmm. to 
that old American status quo of multi-generational families, not just the nuclear family, not just this invented thing of like mother, father, and one or two kids, yeah, but family writ large. And so, you know, when you're saying like, what can I do? If you're from a big family working in one of these offices, witness to that. Talk mm. about how great it was to grow up in a big family. Yeah, talk about the challenges too. Um, and if you're not from that background, you know, help raise awareness in some way about the good of human life and about the necessity of every elected representative at whatever level uh, to get involved, to promote it. That's what the state is for. Mm -hmm. That's what we're all doing here is we're trying to pass laws to strengthen the country uh, and, and to promote the common good, to promote the public welfare. Uh, and so I think that, you know, it's like if, if we don't learn to have the courage to do that and if we don't take the opportunities we have to witness and to speak and to encourage, um, we're selling our own vision short. Yeah, we can do a lot better. Absolutely. That's a that's a good word. Um, Tom, thank you very much for for coming on Moment of Truth. Uh, we've wanted to have you here for a long time. So I, I really appreciate your your willingness to be here. You guys are awesome. Keep it up. I told you that was going to be uh, quite an interesting uh, episode. You know, you may have some disagreements uh, after listening to uh, uh, Tom and I's conversation, but um, surely, if you're a listener of this show, uh, you can agree that that it should be a goal of the conservative movement uh, to support more babies, uh, to support families, um, which really are uh, the the special interest group of the conservative movement. Um, that's that's you know uh, those are the people that have created uh, this great nation that we live in. Um, so uh, even if you disagree, I would highly recommend that you engage uh, with with AUL, uh, that you go and look at all the things they have on their websites, AUL dot uh, org. Um, and once again, thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. Please rate and review our show. Give us five stars. Leave a comment if you're so inclined about how much uh, you love the show or whether or not you hate my beard or whatever. Um, uh, and make sure to visit americamoment.org to see more of our programming and things that we have going on. And uh, once again, if you're an intern in D.C. and you'd like to join AM Fridays, our summer intern training program, that is americamoment.org slash AM Fridays. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.